Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. As Di alluded, uh, over the next nine weeks, we are starting a new sermon series uh, based on the book of Job and the theme that we're exploring and unpacking uh, is the theme of suffering as it relates to faith. And this is Brenda in 2016, a licensed financial advisor from Malaysia, the country I was born and raised in, for those of you who don't know. She's in a hospital due to untold stress from experiencing one misfortune after another. It all began in 2003 when her mother's medical bills gobbled up all of their savings. The medical system in Malaysia is similar uh, to the USA. You basically have to pay your way. She said, uh, we had to sell our property and pawn our goal in order to cover mom's uh, medical expenses, she recalled. And before she could take a breather after mom eventually passed away in 2016, there was a loud explosion in her kitchen followed by the loudest scream, the kind that you cannot unhear. After discovering a gas leak in her kitchen, instead of turning her gas stove off, Brenda unknowingly turned it on. A scream came from her 13-year-old daughter. Brenda and her husband dashed into the kitchen to find their daughter, Charlene, in absolute agony, yelling at the top of her voice, help me, help me, this is painful, this is painful. They rushed her to the nearest hospital. There were boils all over her skin. Over the next 26 days, Brenda's husband, Robert, uh, was with her in the intensive care unit. Just four months later, in the same year, four months later, on the 5th of July, Robert suddenly collapsed and lost consciousness. His brother rushed him to the hospital. He was dead on arrival. It suffered a sudden and major heart attack. This had been completely unexpected as Robert was a very strong and fit guy. A biopsy was conducted and revealed that one of his arteries had been completely blocked. In addition to this humongous breaking loss, she was overcome with guilt. It made her breathless and brought on panic attacks every four hours. You see, Robert Uh, had once asked Brenda a question. Do you think you have married the wrong person? Do you think you have married the wrong person? But for whatever the reason, uh, Brenda didn't answer him. And then he, he died, of course. So at the funeral and after, Brenda felt like a worthless human being until the Lord freed her from her guilt, assuring her that she had been a great wife to Robert until he died. A month after Robert's funeral, the eldest son, Dixon, 14 years old, started developing big lumps, the size of golf balls all over his body. Very soon, there were patches on his body, which are full of pus. After further tests, a skin specialist said, we will have to carry out an emergency surgical removal of these lumps. If not, this can seriously harm his body. One thing after another, you know, the world caved in. She suddenly experienced a resurgence of those panic attacks that she had earlier and the sharp pain on her chest as well. 
on the left chest. She couldn't speak, she was numb, and thankfully, the surgery was a success. Dixon did fully recover. Just when she thought her storm had passed, her six-year-old daughter, Ashley, suddenly had a severe asthma attack. She was coughing incessantly, having breathing difficulties. By now, Brenda's body could no longer cope with the enormous amount of stress that she had been under in such a short space of time. As a result, she started bleeding heavily due to the thickening of the walls of her womb. An average adult has 5.7 liters of blood, but she only had 2.7 liters. She needed several rounds of blood transfusion. One morning when her daughter Ashley was crying for help, uh, Brenda collapsed on the toilet floor of apartment in deep pain. She managed to contact the ambulance and a church member, Jane. Both mom and daughter were admitted to the emergency department side by side in the same ward with intravenous tubes all over their bodies. Soon, Jane, the church member, was joined by the rest of her Life Together group who committed themselves to helping and supporting Brenda and her family. As an industry leader and trailblazer in the finance sector, Brenda never felt the need to be authentic to her pain inside or even vulnerable, but not this time. She was on the verge of losing all hope. One thing I realized, Brenda said, is that whenever you're feeling lonely and down, the only person you can truly turn to is God and God alone. During this period of trauma and hopelessness, Brenda experienced the love of God beyond that which she could ever imagine. She held on and experienced Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, in which the Lord Jesus says, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. That and the practical love shown by her church greatly encouraged her and lifted her from her state of despair and darkness. Today, she's the group managing director of a financial investment company. Of her trial, she says, I recognize the sovereignty of God in my life. Without his permission, nothing could have happened, and I know he meant it for good. Suffering is not a question of if. The Bible is clear that suffering, that tests, that stretch, that refines our faith will happen to all Christians. In stark contrast with pagan religions that say, do things for God so that suffering won't happen to you, Christianity has a very realistic take on it. In fact, Christianity was founded through the suffering of our Lord Jesus, not in spite of it. And Jesus himself guarantees us in John chapter 6, verse 33, the following, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. First Peter 4.12, the apostle Peter writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're, suffer you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. You can't escape from it, no matter how hard you try to avoid suffering. 
Take, for instance, the death of a loved one. There's nothing you can do about this. Your loved ones will die sooner or later. And in honor of Queen Elizabeth II, let me quote a line from a message of support she delivered 21 years ago in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks. She said, grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is the price we pay for love. I think of the pain and suffering of parents and loved ones of all the five teenagers aged between 14 and 16 who tragically died early September in a single vehicle car crash. Think of the pain that they're going through. And when we suffer, it is completely natural to ask, why? Why now? Why this? Why them? Why not me? Why us? Why now? And in the final analysis, our questions are, in effect, questions about God's character and his ways. Inevitably, the question we arrive at is, God, just exactly what kind of a God are you that you would allow suffering and evil to happen in my life? What kind of a God are you exactly that you would allow that? Particularly the kind of pain and suffering that we feel is needless, inexplicable, unjust, unfair. Is he really powerful and in control? Is he really good? And if God is powerful and in control, then why did he allow suffering and evil in the world? And if suffering and evil occurs in the world, then he's he's either not all-powerful and in control, or he is just not a good God. You can't have it both ways, so the reasoning goes. And the topic of suffering is also relevant, particularly in terms of our church theme, as most of you know, is based on Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, where Jesus says, uh, said to his disciples and says to us, have faith in God. And faith, as we've uh, said, using Andy Stanley's definition, is the confidence that God is truly who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do. And one of the things that God uses to grow our faith in him is pivotal circumstances. And I can't think of a more pivotal thing, a more pivotal circumstance than times of suffering and adversities. And I can hear your mind going, hang on a sec. How is it possible that our faith can grow through pain and adversity? Surely the opposite would occur. That is a good question. There is anecdotal evidence. You might know people in your life. After having gone through suffering, after having gone through a very difficult period of time in their lives, you know people, uh, friends or relatives, who are no longer Christians. They've abandoned their faith. They're not just, they started off having questions about their faith, but eventually they've abandoned God altogether. And yet at the same time, there's also anecdotal evidence that indeed suffering has led people to a deeper faith in God, a deeper experience and reality of God's love and grace, like Brenda. And in the book of Job, we will see evidence of the latter. 
No one can go through what Job had been through and not be changed, right? Either for the worse or for the better. You cannot experience what Job experienced and come out unscathed. And we will see that by God's grace, Job's faith grew and deepened. Just a little overview of the book of Job. And I've uh, given you a link uh, to Bible Project in the newsletter. If you haven't gone to that link, go to that link. It provides a much more in-depth and a better overview than I'm doing this morning. Obviously, the major theme of the book of Job is suffering and faith. Particularly inexplicable, unjust, innocent, what we might call innocent suffering. The book of Job has long been been celebrated as one of the greatest books ever written, a masterpiece of Hebrew poetry and Western literature. Victor Hugo said, tomorrow of all literature was to to be destroyed and and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. Daniel Webster, one of the greatest American orators, law and statesmen, who served as the U.S. Secretary of State in the early 19th century, had this to to say. The book of Job, taken as a mere work of literary, literary genius, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or of any language. Thomas Carlyle, a 19th century Scottish essayist and teacher, wrote this about Job. It is the greatest thing ever written with pen. There is nothing, I think, written in the Bible out of it of equal merit. And finally, British poet Alfred Tennyson's called it the greatest poem, whether of ancient or of modern literature. The primary reason why people are so drawn to the book of Job is because Job's experience is one we can all understand, perhaps not necessarily on an intellectual level, but at an experiential level. We might not suffer to the degree that Job did, but we can still see something of our lives in his experiences. As Steve Chase explains in his commentary on Job, with literary cunning, the book of Job draws us into our own pain, betrayal, grief, loss, heartache, sorrow, death, illness, and incomprehensibility by wounding us precisely at our weakest, most vulnerable point. There's nothing like the book of Job in the Hebrew or or Christian scriptures. Of all the books of scripture, Job wrestles most vigorously with God. The book of Job is the struggle for the last truth about God. From Job's perspective, this last truth may be dripping with ambivalence and shot through with evil. The integrity of not the victory of Job's journey is in its humanness, a universal lament. Why? Why? And we practice lament too seldom today. But without, this is the powerful bit here, but without lament, one becomes only half a person. Without lament, we struggle only for the last half-truth about God. 
Keller puts it this way. He says that he has learned 10 times more about the grace of God in times of darkness than in times of prosperity. That he's learned 10 times more about the grace of God in times of darkness than in times of prosperity. At the end of our service after communion, we will sing a song of lament from Psalms 42. Another question the author explores in the book of Job is where is wisdom found? Where is wisdom found? Interestingly, the book of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, along with the book of Psalm and the Song of Solomon. Wisdom in the Old Testament is more to do with a practical understanding of how to live a life that is pleasing to God, rather than the more intellectual, philosophical understanding of wisdom in Greek thought, the foundation of Western philosophy. The essence of and the difference between each of the three books, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, can be summed up accordingly. Proverbs says that life will work out if we do what's right. That is, if we do what's wise. Therefore, the focus of Proverbs then is about doing what's right. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, says that life will end no matter what you do. The focus of Ecclesiastes is about living your life to the full as a gift from God and for his glory. Finally, Job tells us that even if we do what's right, even if we do what's wise, life can still be filled with pain and suffering. How to navigate as wise, godly people through uh, inexplicable and unfair pain and suffering, that's the focus of the book of Job. But be warned. How we are to do this is not easily discernible, nor will we necessarily like the wisdom Job presents. So three vantage points on life. Hope that's helpful. Because when you read through these three books, they seem like they're contradictions. They're not. They're just looking at life from three vantage points and offering wisdom on all those dimensions of life. The composition and structure of Job, combining two literary forms, prose and poetry, Job contains a total of 42 chapters. Book ended by a prologue in the first two chapters, an epilogue in chapter 42, verses 7 to 17, which are written in narrative prose. Everything else in between are conversations between God, between Job and his friends, and God's verbal response to Job, all in poetry. Now, why is this, we may ask? There's a difference between how prose and poetry speak to us, the readers. As J.I. Packer uh, points out, poems are always a personal take on something, communicating not just from the head to head, from the heart to heart. Given the theme of suffering in Job, the poetic style helps us connect with Job on a heart level. 
So in Job 1 and 2, we have a dialogue between God and Satan, followed by Job being hit with one painful tragedy after another. In chapter 3, things get so bad, we have Job cursing the day he was born, followed by three cycles of dialogues with each of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, in that order, presenting an argument, a theological argument, to Job, uh, theological explanation to Job on why he's suffering, and Job responding to each of them. The dialogue cycle gets shorter and shorter as they run out of things to say to each other. In fact, uh, Zophar doesn't make a speech at all at the end. And then we have what seems like a very odd pause in Job chapter 28, about which there is much disagreement. There are scholars who argue that the chapter, which is a poem about wisdom, seems completely out of place because not only is it perfectly composed, self, a, self, a perfectly composed and self-contained unit, its tone and its classical style represent a mild departure from, a blis- from the blistering unorthodoxy of Job's other speeches found in chapters before and after. It just doesn't look like it's the same person speaking here. They conclude, therefore, that chapter 28 was inserted by the author at a later date, or that chapter 28 is best viewed as an interlude by the narrator. But others insist that chapter 28 is a speech of Job bridging from his last speech in his dialogue to his first speech in the discourses from chapter 29 to 31, where he challenges God repeatedly and he demands that God meets with him, that, that if he had his day in court, he would be able to prove his innocence to God. Just give me that chance. Why won't you meet with me? Why won't you grant me an audience? And I will prove to you that I am innocent, at least innocent in terms of the sufferings that I'm going through. I'm not deserving of this happening to me. And then from chapters 32 to 37, a new character by the name of Elihu is introduced. He's younger than Job's three other friends, and evidently he's been there all along, quietly listening to the interaction between Job and his three friends. Well, he puts his cent, three, uh, two cents worth here, and while he doesn't say anything new, he does expand in more detail some of the points made by Job's three friends. And then from chapters 38 to 41, we have God's climactic response to Job, followed by Job's reply to God, a short reply uh, from chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. In the epilogue from chapter 42, verses 7 to 17, God rebukes Job's friends, affirms Job, and blesses and restores everything Job lost. But this is the crunch, right? What stands out in the story is that God never answers Job's questions, nor tells him what we know at the start. God does not tell Job the reason why this is happening is because earlier I had a conversation with Satan. Job doesn't know what we know. It's interesting. God does not explain to Job why he went through 
what he went through. It is enough that Job recognizes that God is all-powerful, he's wise, he's loving, he's faithful, he's just, as he works out his sovereign purpose in the world. So that's an overview of Job. Please read it. I know it's a tough book to read, especially if you're not into poetry. I don't. I'm not into poetry. I wrestle and struggle with poetry, so I have to read it. Now we come to the section of the sermon. We ask the question, so what? Thanks for all of that. So what? In James 1 and 1, verse 2, we're told that we will face trials, difficulties, many kinds that will test our faith. The word for test has connotations of smelting, which we all know is a process used to extract precious metals from their ores, like gold, iron, and silver, through the use of enormous heat. Worthless metals subsequently oxidize in the same process and turn into slags. Suffering is referred to in the book of James, Hebrews, and 1 Peter as a kind of furnace that tests that purifies our faith and builds our character to be more Christ-like. Think about it. Just think about that thought. Hold that thought. For example, suffering can humble us greatly. If we're proud, what we need is a dose of humility. And sometimes humility can come in the form of pain. It can grow our capacity for empathy, for love, for self-awareness and compassion. If it weren't for suffering, I can tell you right now that I'd be one arrogant human being, one arrogant husband, one arrogant pastor, one arrogant father who thinks he knows it all. I can assure you of that. And that is what James meant when he wrote, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. There is a lot of good that can come from suffering. God works all things for good, we're told in Romans 8, 28. James is most certainly not saying, be happy when you suffer. And he's not saying that God is only happy with us if we put on a happy face when we suffer. That is not what James is saying. James is not a sadist. There's nothing good about suffering per se. Suffering is overwhelming. Suffering is often unjust. Suffering is painful, can be senseless and confusing. And we'll see next week that God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of suffering. He's not the author of disease. He's not the author of death any more than he's the author of sin. God is not the author of suffering. Jesus snorted in anger and wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But God says to us, hold on to my character. Hold on to my promises. Hold on to who I am as revealed through Christ. Trust me and lean on my grace in the midst of suffering. And I will turn you into pure gold. And we read the following in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Is that how you view your faith? That is worth more than gold? Or will you lay your faith at the altar of gold, which many Christians do? Or the altar of our careers? The Apostle James says a similar thing. He tells us to consider God and the transformation he wants to bring to our faith in him through suffering. And he goes on to say, if we hang on to God, to his goodness, in the midst of suffering, our faith will grow and mature, lacking in nothing. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. And he just listed a list, a long list of trials and tribulations beforehand that he had personally undergone. Though inwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light. He's not minimizing suffering. He's just saying, put it into perspective. It is temporary. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs the suffering that we go through. The God that we encounter in Job is not a sadist. He's not one who indiscriminately, indiscriminately and heartlessly plays with our lives. He's not cold. He's not aloof to our suffering. No, he's a good, just, and powerful God. Neither suffering nor death nor the devil has the last word. A Bible commentator by the name of Andrew Preto sums it up well. Our loving Heavenly Father provides us with real and lasting hope that in the end is stronger than all our doubts, our fears, and our disappointments, sin and even death, ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question then is not just, where is God in suffering? But also, where are we? Where is our faith in the midst of suffering? Are we allowing our hearts to become so bitter and so cynical toward God that we turn away from him because of our pain and suffering? Because God refuses to, to, to explain to us why we're going through what we're going through or he refuses to remove the thorns from our side? Have we become cynical? Have we become hard-hearted? Have we become so angry at God that we're withdrawn from him? Or are we turning our hearts to him, hanging on to his absolute goodness in spite of our suffering, the likes of Job, the likes of Brenda did the letter, and by the grace of God, so can we, so can we. As we come to the Lord's table for a sermon application, let me conclude with a story of a guy who, as a result of chemotherapy and radiation for cancer, was unable to have children of his own. So he adopted several. Unfortunately, a few of his adopted children developed serious medical and behavioral psychiatric problems that involved multiple visits to the hospital. When one of his children was gripped again by illness and hospitalized, this man was exasperated and he called out bitterly to God, I cannot go on like this, God. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? 
No answer from God. If this is love, then I don't want love. I don't like it. No answer from God. How can you be doing this to me? You're going to have to show me something because I don't get it and I don't think I can keep this up. No answer. But then he asked, do you have any idea what it's like to see your son suffering? Do you have any idea what it's like to see your son suffering? And this is what he wrote. And then I stopped and I had my answer. We have a strange religion. God's answer to our suffering was to become one of us, to suffer with us and for us. I cried buckets. Walter Storff, a Christian professor of theology at Yale Divinity School, who lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident, wrote in his book, Lament for a Son, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought that this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said to me that perhaps it is meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God simply shares it. God simply shares it. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him and by his wounds, by his suffering, through his pain, through his sorrow, we are healed. We have suffered. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.